wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. For you have made a city a ruin, a fortified city a ruin, a palace of foreigners to be a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, the strong people will glorify you. The city of the terrible nations will fear you. For you've been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. You will reduce the noise of aliens as heat in a dry place, as heat in the shadow of a cloud. The song of the terrible ones will be diminished. And on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces The rebuke of His people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him, and He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. We will be glad and rejoice in His salvation. For on this mountain the hand of the Lord will rest, and Moab shall be trampled down under Him, as straw is trampled down for the refuse heap. And he will spread out his hands in their midst as a swimmer reaches out to swim. And he will bring down their pride together with the trickery of their hands. The fortress of the high fort of your walls he will bring down, lay low, and bring to the ground, down to the dust. In our New Testament reading, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. That's page 1050 in the church Bible. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Amen. That ends the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray and ask him to bless now the preaching of it. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, that we might see wonderful things in your word that we might see Christ in all His glory, beauty, and loveliness, and all His sufficiency for us as our Savior, that we might, uh, that we might feed on Him and, uh, uh, and, and trust in Him. We pray that You would do this work in our hearts by Your Spirit. Amen. 
Our culture seems to have a hard time knowing what to do with death. Uh, uh, it seems like our, our, our culture struggles to know how to make sense of it, what to do with it. Uh, uh, we like to try to hide it away and pretend that it doesn't really happen. Um, the writer Carl Truman talks about a time when he and his wife saw the movie The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the Disney version. Truman had read the book, uh, uh, which has a very different ending from the Disney movie. And Truman comments like this, I remember my jaw hitting the floor some years ago when I watched a Disney version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, where the hunchback does not die, but lives happily ever after. The point of the story of Quasimodo is that the guy with the hump dies at the end and it's all terribly sad. My wife is meant to cry, and I am meant to feel angry at the raw deal Quasimodo has been dealt in the poker game of life. But that's not a message that our culture can stomach, right? So we, we write death out of the story. We, we just cut that part out of the script. It's not just our culture that has a hard time knowing what to do with death and how to make sense of it. It's, it's I think, every culture that isn't saturated with the gospel we don't know what to do when death comes. It was the same in Paul's time. Perhaps they didn't hide it as much. Maybe they couldn't uh, as we can, but they didn't know what to do. There's a letter from the second century, uh, close to the time Paul's writing First Thessalonians, just a century or so later. There's a copy of a letter that survived from this Egyptian woman named Irene. She wrote to a husband and wife whose son had just died, and she ends her letter like this. Nevertheless, Against such things, one can do nothing. Therefore, comfort one another. Farewell. She says in this letter, we can't do anything in the face of death. Comfort each other. Farewell. But what kind of comfort is that? She doesn't know what to write in this letter. She just says, we can't do anything. Soothe each other's feelings. You can't change the reality. The Greek writer Theocritus, writing a few hundred years before Paul, said something similar. He wrote this, Hopes are for the living, the dead have no hope. That's the, that's the general view of the world that Paul is living in and that the world that the Thessalonians are living in. Death is, is unavoidable, and there's nothing you can do to help it. So just, just make the best of this life that you can. And as Paul writes the letter to the Thessalonians, you know, he's, he, he's uh, been separated from them for some time. He sent Timothy to go find out how they're doing. Timothy comes back with uh, good news. They're doing well. But Timothy also seems to have brought back some sad news that some of the Thessalonian uh, church members have died. And so Paul writes this, this letter to them. It could be that they died under persecution. Uh, we know that the situation there was getting more intense and more difficult for them to be Christians. Um, maybe not. It might have been a sickness they perished of. But whatever it was, some of the members of their young, uh, fledgling church have died. This has not been an easy few months for this brand new church, has it? They've gone through a lot already. And, and uh, they, they, they've faced slander and they've been cut off from their families and cut off from their culture and cut off from um, uh, their former ways of life. And and uh, they're facing outright persecution, and now some in their church are dying. But they have an opportunity here, don't they? Um, people are watching the Thessalonians, right? How are they going to respond 
now that some of their members are even dying? That's what the pagans around them are probably asking. Right? Are, they, are the Christians going to come crawling back to paganism when they realize that their members still die? That Christ hasn't returned yet? Maybe, maybe the, uh, the, the pagans around them are wondering, does this new religion give them something in the face of death that we don't have? This is the religion that preaches the resurrection of the dead and life everlasting. So, so maybe they have something there that we don't have. How are they going to respond in the face of grief? And so Paul writes to the Thessalonians because he doesn't want them to waste their grief. He wants them to please God with it and be a good witness in the midst of it. All right, that's kind of the, the start of chapter 4, which is the chapter we're in here in 1 Thessalonians. Paul says, I want you to increase in pleasing God. That's sort of the heading over the whole chapter. He said, I want you to increase in pleasing God and your, your purity and your holiness of life, uh, unlike the... the, the the culture around you in 4, 1 through 8. And then the next few verses, he says, I want you to increase in loving one another and serving one another. And now he's saying, I want you to increase in your hope. I want you to be faithful to please God in your grief. And he wants them to be a light shining in the darkness here, right? To hold out this hope that the culture around them doesn't have. He's not saying they shouldn't grieve. But he's saying, I want you to grieve as those who have hope. So he writes, verse 13 of our text, I do not want you to be ignorant brothers concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Paul's saying, when a Christian grieves, it should look different from the way that non-Christians grieve. He's not saying real Christians don't cry. Mature Christians, you know, strong Christians, they don't get, uh, they don't, they don't get sad when death happens. No, he's, but he's saying something should look different. We shouldn't grieve like the world grieves. The world grieves hopelessly because their, 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 their grief is permanent. And for the world, there's nothing you can do. Death is permanent. So your grief over death is also permanent. But for the Christian, death is not permanent. Neither should our grief be. So Paul writes in verse 13, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be unaware, uninformed about the truth, about the reality that the Christian lives in. I want you to live with the mindset that's shaped by the truth of the gospel that Jesus has risen from the dead. Loved ones, just like the Thessalonian church here, we need our minds and hearts shaped by the reality of the gospel, the resurrection, and so filled with hope, even when grief is coming. Why should we have hope? Why should we hope? That's, that's what uh, Paul goes on in the rest of the section here to lay out for the Thessalonians. He said, I don't want you to grieve. Now here's why. He starts with the resurrection of Christ. That's our first heading. The resurrection of Christ. Verse 14, he says this. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Follow the logic of of Paul's argument here with me. Uh, Paul starts with a premise, right? Uh, He starts by saying this. Here's what's true. Jesus rose from the dead. He died and then he rose from the dead. As, as far as Paul is concerned, that is an irrefutable, unarguable, historical fact. 
Over in 1 Corinthians 15, he writes that more than 500 people saw Jesus alive in his, in his body uh, after his death and burial. They saw the risen Lord Jesus. Uh, we, we see that Jesus' resurrection could not have been a, a lie devised by the disciples in order to kind of get some kind of power for themselves. When Jesus died, what were the disciples doing? Cowering behind locked doors in upper rooms. They weren't ready to go out and preach a risen Christ. They were terrified of their lives. It wasn't until Jesus rose from the dead that they had courage. Once he rose from the dead and gave them the Spirit. And we know that this isn't the gospel of, of Jesus' resurrection can't be a myth. Uh, the, these gospel accounts were written within the, the living memory of people who knew Jesus, walked with him, saw him. If, this was a, if these weren't true things that the gospels record for us, then someone would have said something. Not everyone would have just gone on with the whole thing. And most of all, most of all, this is what God Himself promised. God Himself in His Word. God who is truth itself in His Word promised the resurrection. So Paul starts with this foundational truth. Jesus rose from the dead. You can't deny it, Paul says. You can't deny it, but if you do, you're wrong. He rose from the dead. Paul's argument then is, okay, if you, if you agree with that, Jesus rose from the dead, then here's what's true. God will also raise up from the dead those who died in union with Jesus. If you believe Jesus rose from the dead, you must also believe that those who are in Jesus will rise from the dead. Look with me at, at the end of verse 14, if you have it. Um, Paul describes, how does, how does Paul describe the Christians who have died there? He says, they are those who sleep in Jesus. Those who sleep in Jesus. This is the second time Paul's referred to those who've died in Christ as asleep. He's going to do it again, too, at the, in, in verse 15. And so, why is he using this terminology of to be asleep in Jesus? Well, it was a common phrase in the day. Uh, Non-Christians used it. The Jews used it as, as a euphemism for death to kind of soften the blow, right? Say that, well, they've fallen asleep. They've passed away. We use these things to try to soften the blow of death, not quite acknowledge what's really happened. But for, for Paul, he's not just using it like that. The, 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 the early Christians latch on to this description of death because it's so fitting for Christians. And because Jesus himself does this, right? Look, uh, listen to the words in Luke 8, verse 52. Jesus is there by the bedside of this little girl who's died. And he goes in and he looks at her. He says, she's not dead. She's only sleeping. And everybody laughs in mockery. Who is this charlatan? Who does he think he is coming in here and saying she's only sleeping? And Jesus says, little child, get up. And the child gets up. Right? Jesus knows this child is, is, is actually dead. But, but to him, it's as if she's only sleeping. Because he has such authority and power that he can go and say to her, wake up. And she wakes up. We see it in John 11, verse 11. Jesus goes to the... He's, he's on his way to, to raise Lazarus from the dead. He says to his disciples, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. He goes to the tomb. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, Lazarus wakes up. He obeys. So Paul 
uses this description of those who are dead in Christ. He says those who are asleep in Jesus. Right? As those who are waiting to be woken up at the resurrection. Paul makes this clear by not just saying these people who died are asleep, but notice what he says about that sleep. He says they're asleep in Jesus. What does he mean? What does it mean to be asleep in Jesus? It's an interesting phrase. Well, well, basic to Paul's understanding of the Christian life is that we live the Christian life in union with Christ. That's how it starts, and that's how it goes on, right? As when we have faith in Christ, when the Spirit comes, gives us faith in Jesus, then we're united with Jesus, spiritually, with an inseparable, unbreakable bond. There's no force that can separate the Lord Jesus from those who've been united to Him by faith. Paul says in Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Paul lists out all these things that would bring death. He says not even death can separate the believer from the Lord Jesus once he's been united to Him by faith. Romans 14.8, Paul writes, For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Is that a glorious truth? That the believer is permanently united with the risen Lord Jesus. What about our bodies? We know our souls are united with the Lord Jesus are, 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 are the bodies of believers included in this promise of union with Him? Or, or at our death, are they just cast off as a shell as our spirits go to be with God? Well, no. Scripture teaches that our bodies, right, our, our whole person is united to Christ, soul and body. And so our whole person will benefit from His resurrection. One of my favorite questions and answers in this shorter catechism highlights this so beautifully for us. It's question and answer 37. Let me read it. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? Answer. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness, do immediately pass into glory, and their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. A larger catechism fleshes it out even more. It says the communion and glory which the members of the invisible church enjoy immediately after death is in that their souls are made perfect in holiness, received into the highest heavens where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies, which, even in death, continue united to Christ and rest in their graves as in their beds till at the last day they be again united to their souls. The believer's body, we believe, rests in the grave as in a bed, still united to Christ, waiting for the resurrection. Isaiah 57, 1-2 describes this very reality, describes the righteous who have died as though they are sleeping in their beds, waiting for God's salvation to come. What, what does all this mean? It means that, that it's only a matter of time 
until the resurrection happens for our bodies. We've been united to Christ, body and soul. And so we, we are only waiting until that great day when we are raised and our bodies are made like His glorious body. All this because Jesus rose from the dead. Because He came out of the tomb, we will also. His, his resurrection is not an isolated thing. No, it's the, it's the first fruits of a great harvest that will come. So this is Paul's logic in verse 14, right? Jesus has been raised. We will be raised, body and soul, with him if we are those who sleep in Jesus, die in union with him. So this is the great reason for our hope. But this is why we don't grieve as others do when believers pass away or when we ourselves will pass away. We don't, we don't face death. We don't grieve over death without hope like others do. Because what does death take away from us, really, except our sin and unholiness? Yes, there's a great grief at the unnaturalness of death. All right, it's an affront to God. Our Lord Jesus weeps in the face of it and at the tomb of Lazarus. But, but what does death take away for the believer? It ushers us into the presence of Christ, and our bodies aren't cast off and forgotten. They, too, will be cared for by our Lord Jesus and resurrected at the last day. So Paul says, we have this glorious hope. But the Thessalonians are struggling. Uh, they're, they're struggling with uh, how to understand... Okay, they understand Jesus rose from the dead, but they're struggling with, with how this is going to bring about their own resurrection. What's going to happen to those who are dead when Jesus returns versus those who are still alive when Jesus returns? They're wondering, what if those who have died before Jesus returns get something less, right? Because maybe they're not there to see the, the return of Christ. Or maybe they're somehow forgotten about in, in the last day. Maybe, maybe it's only those who are alive when Jesus comes back that see the resurrection and get to participate in it. That's, that's uh, what they're wondering. So ca- to counter this, Paul unpacks in more detail how the resurrection of believers at Christ's return will work. And that's our second heading. We saw the resurrection of Christ. Now we're going to look at the return of Christ. The return of Christ. <clears throat> So the Thessalonians are wondering what happens to those who've died when Christ returns versus those who are still alive when he does. Now, it's probably hard for us to, to understand where their question is coming from, um, to understand why they're wrestling with this question. I haven't had anyone call me up on the phone and say, Pastor, uh, uh, what about those who are dead when Jesus returns? Do they not get the resurrection like those who are alive when he returns? No one's asked that question. It's not a pressing question in our church, as far as I know. Um, so what relevance does it have to us? Well, as, as Paul unpacks this particular uh, answer to the question that's bothering the Thessalonians, he pulls back the curtain a little bit for us and what Christ's return will hold. And as, as we see, even if we don't have the same exact question the Thessalonians did, as we see what Paul teaches us here about Jesus' return and what it means for our resurrection, there's great comfort for us here, too, as we consider grief and, and death. So let's, let's look at it together. First, in verses 15 and 16 here, Paul piles on the assurance, the reassurance, for those who've lost loved ones. 
that, that those whom they've lost, the, the dear saints in the Thessalonian church that passed away, they will not be forgotten or neglected by the Lord. Paul writes this, those who are alive at Christ's coming will by no means precede those who have already died. He says in verse 15, the dead in Christ will rise first. So that those who have died before Christ comes back, they'll actually rise from the dead first. They'll, they'll be resurrected first before those who are still alive have their bodies transformed like their Lord's. Second thing we see here is at the beginning of verse 15, Paul establishes why we should depend on this, why we should rely so fully on everything he's saying here. He says in verse 15, we say this to you by the word of the Lord. Paul's saying you can depend on this 100% because this is what the Lord himself taught. This is what Jesus himself taught perhaps through some revelation to Paul or through the oral tradition of other things Jesus has said that, that was passed down from the disciples. Loved ones, there's a great comfort here in this. Jesus himself has promised that all those who have died in union with him will not be forgotten or neglected. Not one will be passed over. That includes your loved ones who trust in the Lord Jesus. That includes you, right? We have this great teaching in Jesus, from our Lord Jesus. Every hair of, of our head is numbered. Or he, he, he knows us through and through. That's true in life. It's true in death. That's how the Lord cares for His people. He's going to raise us up with Him and remake us with the same glorious power with which He knit us together in the first place. Next thing we see here, as Paul unpacks this, so this, he has this great promise that this is, this is the promise of Jesus himself for us. Not one of his people will be neglected or forgotten, whether they're dead when Christ returns or whether they're still alive. Then he, then he unpacks a little bit the glories of Christ's coming, what it's going to be like when Christ returns. Paul tells us that um, the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout. The great New Testament Scholar uh, G.K. Beale writes this, The old world reality will be ripped away and the new eternal reality will appear along with Christ's presence. When Christ appears, he will not descend from the sky over Boston or London or New York or Hong Kong or any other localized area. When he appears, the present dimension will be ripped away and Christ will be manifest to all eyes throughout the earth. Revelation 6.14 describes Christ's coming as the sky being rolled up like a scroll and the heavenly reality breaking through so that suddenly we're caught up into the very heavenly reality itself. Or I picture one of those quick-release blinds. You tug on the bottom and it coils up and snaps up. That's what the return of Christ is pictured as. This universe is going to be rolled up like a scroll and we'll see the heavenly reality. And as all this happens, we will hear the voice of an archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God. These are pictures of judgment and salvation coming at the same time. It's going to be deafening and overwhelming. Paul is pointing to the glories of Christ's return. What's it all going to accomplish? Well, one thing it will accomplish is that like the shout that Jesus uttered at the tomb of Lazarus, the dead in Christ will rise. 
All this, all this great power on display at Christ's return as the universe itself is rolled up, uh, is going to accomplish the resurrection of the dead in Christ. He will call, and, and like Lazarus coming out of the tomb, uh, we will all come forth. Uh, our bodies remade like His glorious body, reunited with our souls, never to die or suffer again. How, how will God do this? We don't know. We don't know the details. We cannot imagine or fathom uh, the details of how God will work this out. But we don't need to, do we? We know He's the God who made all things out of nothing by the word of His power. And the last day, He will do it again. He will resurrect all those who died in Christ by the word of His power. And that's all we need to know. So this is what will happen, Paul says, for those who've died. Don't worry. They won't be forgotten. Your loved ones in Christ who've passed away will not be neglected. What about those, Paul, what about those who remain alive at Christ's return? Paul says in verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So those who are uh, alive when Christ returns, just like those who are dead, will also be caught up to meet Christ. Uh, their bodies also will be transformed. Will also be, be be made fit for the new creation with new bodies that we are uh, to, with which to glorify and enjoy the Lord. What does Paul mean here as he talks about being caught up in the clouds and in the air? These are words in Scripture that refer to the presence of God and the glory of God. Think of the think of Mount Sinai, the cloud of God's glory that comes and spreads over Mount Sinai, or the temple or the tabernacle as it's as it's finished and the cloud of glory comes down on top of it. These are pictures in the Scriptures for the presence and the glory of God. So Paul is saying we're going to be caught up in the clouds like our Lord Jesus in His ascension uh, into, the, into the presence of God Himself. What will the result of all this be? The end of verse 17. Thus, we shall always be with the Lord. This is why Jesus suffered and died. This is why the Spirit gives us union with Jesus so that when we are raised up on the last day, we might be forever with the Lord. So that we might enjoy sweet fellowship with Him. So that we might have sweet fellowship with each other, together with Him. Paul says we shall all always be together with the Lord. Loved ones, the fellowship we will enjoy then with the Lord will be better than the sweetest taste of communion with God that we've ever had in this life. Far, far better. The, our, our best moments in this life are mixed with sin. Our, our, our highest joys are tinged with sorrow. But, but there, then, we'll be forever with the Lord, perfectly uh, equipped to glorify and enjoy Him without any sin, without any grief, without the shadow of death, without any kind of parting possible from the Lord. Our minds won't wander from worship. We won't, uh, we won't find our affections for God cooling or, 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 or wandering from Him. We won't get tired. We won't get sick. We won't have any of the effects of sin. We'll be raised up with the Lord. This is not wishful thinking. It sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? But this is our glorious hope based on the what? That, that, that firm bedrock that Jesus rose from the dead. And we will too. 
Well, how should this glorious hope, this future that we're longing for, how should this impact us now, day to day? Paul says, verse 18, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So, that's how it's supposed to function for us. That's how this hope should work for us. We should be comforting our hearts and comforting one another's hearts with the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Let me lay out a a few ways here to, to apply this. First, we should comfort our hearts. Comfort your heart. Comfort the heart of your brothers and sisters here at the church with the reminder that you are united to the Lord Jesus. When you feel your mortality, when you, uh, uh, when you see uh, someone else grieving over the loss of a loved one, remind yourself, remind them that you are united, body and soul, with our faithful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Loved ones, if, if you are trusting in Christ, nothing can break your union with Him, the risen Lord Jesus. Take heart from that. Take comfort from that. He has been raised. You will be raised if you're trusting in Him. Your loved one who's trusting in Him, who's passed away, will also be raised. Don't be shy to speak of these things to one another. We need to hear them. And what else could we rather hear from each other? We should also comfort ourselves and comfort each other with a reminder that Christ is going to come again. That His return will be soon. That's what Scripture teaches. And when He does come, whether, we've, uh, whether we're alive to see it or whether we've been dead 500 years, we won't be forgotten and neglected. He'll remember all of His own. He'll call us forth by a word from the grave, transform us to be like Himself. So, loved ones, as you face grief, comfort your heart with the hope of Christ's return. The third thing, comfort your heart. Comfort the hearts of your brothers and sisters with a reminder that you'll be forever with the Lord. You'll never know a moment of separation from the Lord. Not even in death, loved ones, will the believer know a moment of separation from the Lord. He is with us all the way through. Nothing can separate us. Nothing can threaten our relationship with our Lord Jesus. Fourth thing here, what, what about those who don't know Christ? Well, we've got to come to this, right? If we're not united to Jesus, this isn't true of us. So if you are not united to Christ, if you're not trusting in Christ, then you need to come to Him and see that your only hope in the face of death is Christ. Nothing else can hold up. Loved ones, John Donne, great poet of the 17th century, wrote, wrote some words about how the Christian should respond in the face of death. And he says this in, a, in one of his poems. He says, Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. For those whom thou thinkest, thinkest excuse me, for, them, for those whom thou thinkest thou dost overthrow, die not, poor death. Nor canst thou kill me. One short sleep past, we wake eternally. And death, thou shalt be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Don is picking up on Paul's words. 1 Corinthians 15, 55. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your 
sting. Let that be our hope, even as we grieve in the face of death. Let us grieve as those with hope. Jesus is raised, and we shall be raised with him. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we pray that we would continue to bring our hearts under the influence of your word, of your gospel. We pray that the resurrection of our Lord Jesus would be the great hope by which we live and by which we comfort one another. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. As we respond to God's word, our next hymn is number 169. It's the setting of Psalm 45, which is a a wonderful psalm uh, directing our affection to the Lord Jesus, our King. And as we come to the table of the Lord, uh, that's where we want our hearts fixed, on Christ. Uh, So let's sing this setting of Psalm 45 as a hymn to our Lord Jesus Christ. Please stand with me. Thank you.